0: Welcome to Arbitrary and Capricious from George Mason University's Seaboyden and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Gray Center's director, Adam White. On September 13th, the Gray Center hosted a conference on the future of White House regulatory oversight and cost-benefit analysis. At the conference, a number of scholars presented new research on cost-benefit analysis and the White House's Office of Information and, Reg- and Regulatory Affairs, or WIRA. All the papers that we discussed are available on the Gray Center's website. And the conference was keynoted by the White House's acting administrator of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Paul Ray. The conference's closing panel was focused on improving agency cost-benefit analyses. We discussed three new papers. Caroline Sessett and Robert Hahn's paper on transparency in agency cost-benefit analysis. Jerry Ellig and Richard Williams' paper titled, David versus Godzilla, Bigger Stones, and Will Yatman's paper titled, Why Two Congressional OIRAs Are Better Than One. In the discussion, Cessett Williams and Yateman were joined by Connor Rasso. I was the moderator. Here's the recording. We'll begin our last panel now on improving agency cost-benefit analysis. Now, obviously, a number of these themes have come up through the course of the day. Our discussion is the last discussion on regulatory budget and on the earlier discussions about OIRA. But for this panel in particular, we'll be discussing a trio of papers uh, discussed at the round table on practical ways in which cost-benefit analysis might be improved. And I should say, for this one, uh, we actually, three of the papers, or two of the papers were co-authored. And so we're grateful for the co-authors who aren't on the panel. I'll introduce each panelist as they speak. The first is Professor Caroline Seacott. She is an assistant professor of law here at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Her research focuses on cost-benefit analysis, regulatory reform, and energy and environmental regulation. For today's conference, she and her co-author, Robert Hahn, have co-written a paper titled Transparency and Agency, Cost-Benefit Analysis.
1: Go on. Hi, everyone. So I'm thrilled to be here today to share with you uh, joint work with Bob Hahn on transparency and agency cost-benefit analysis. So you've heard a lot about CBA already, uh, but cost-benefit analysis, at a minimum, summarizes the government's view of the expected costs and benefits of a given regulation. And since the Reagan administration, um, executive agencies in the federal government have been required to conduct some form of CBA for significant regulations, and then issue cost-benefit justified uh, regulations to the extent possible. Uh, A CBA for a complicated regulation might rely on tens or hundreds of underlying economic or scientific studies to estimate these impacts. So as agency rulemakings have increased in quantity and importance, there has been renewed interest in decision-making transparency, especially with respect to the scientific or economic underpinnings of agency decisions. So for example, in 2017, Congress proposed a bill that would require the EPA to make all supporting data from underlying studies publicly available online in a manner that is sufficient for independent analysis and substantial reproduction of research results before EPA could rely on the studies. There have been some preliminary analyses that suggest that this, this kind of requirement to provide access to all underlying influential data would cost EPA millions of dollars each year. So proposals like this have been controversial. Even though in the abstract, it seems that we can agree that transparency in government decision-making is a good thing. So when decision-making relies on cost-benefit analysis, transparency about the CBA's inputs and uh, outputs allows interested parties to scrutinize the quality of that analysis. So if interested parties identify errors or provide superior data, for example, their improvements to the CBA might affect the agency's ultimate decision if the decision relied on CBA. And even when an agency does not choose a CBA-justified policy, the analysis will still allow interested parties to at least understand the costs and benefits of agency decisions. So critics of the Trump administration's policies, for example, have frequently used the CBA to make points about the costs or the foregone benefits of certain deregulatory moves or to attack the analysis itself as incomplete or inaccurate. Uh, Previous efforts at increasing transparency in agency decision-making have received high levels of support. So as an example, um, President Obama's Executive Order 13563 required agencies to provide, quote, timely online access to the rulemaking docket on regulations.gov, including relevant scientific and technical findings in an open format that can be easily searched and downloaded in order to provide interested parties an opportunity to comment on the scientific and technical findings. So Bob and I believe that there are at least two reasons why promoting greater transparency in cost-benefit analysis has been so controversial. So the first reason is that recent proposals have narrowly focused on one aspect of transparency, which is making these underlying uh, data from individual studies that support the CBA's estimates available. But that's not the only kind of transparency that we can imagine in cost-benefit analysis. Opposition to this move might reflect a view that the cost of this kind of transparency outweigh the benefits. Uh, And the second reason is that there is little information about the current level of transparency in agency CBA. So improving transparency is not costless, and without a clear sense of the level of transparency in today's CBAs, it's difficult, if not impossible, to evaluate whether the incremental benefits of these new proposals outweigh their costs. So in other words, for there to be any hope on agreement on changes that are worthwhile we have to have a sense of the incremental costs and benefits of different kinds of transparency in light of the baseline level of transparency in CBA. And so that, in a nutshell, defines the goals of our paper. So, specifically, three one, to define different dimensions of transparency specifically for cost benefit analysis, two, to objectively measure uh, some of these dimensions of transparency in a recent sample of CBAs, and three, to provide recommendations for what we think are low-cost ways of improving transparency in cost-benefit analysis. Um, so first, the first point, defining uh, dimensions of transparency. So Bob and I define two dimensions of transparency in CBA: process transparency or transparency about the CBA's creation, its availability, and most importantly, the role it actually plays in the agency's ultimate decision making. Did the agency rely and to what extent? Um, And the second one, policy transparency, or transparency about the inputs that go into the analysis, the outputs, everything that underlies the CBA's conclusions. So inputs include the assumptions or data points that the agency uses in the models that underlie cost-benefit estimates. It also would include a deeper take, um, the raw data that underlies the studies that support the point estimates or the assumptions that are used in cost-benefit analysis. Um, So the second point, we then objectively evaluate the process transparency and the policy transparency of a set of CBAs for significant rules issued between October 2015 September 2018. So our sample includes the 37 executive agency CBAs that monetize at least some costs and at least some benefits. So this sample, so this is a restrictive sample, it's not all CBAs, so this sample is about 22% of the CBAs conducted during that time period. So already you can tell that almost 80% of executive agency CBAs failed to provide at least some basic policy transparency by not quantifying uh, the impacts. But we focus on those that have the quantification, so they're relying on some studies to, at a baseline to make uh, open access to studies in any way uh, worthwhile. So we also examined 13 CBAs from independent agencies, and in this case, We looked at any CBA that monetized some costs or some benefits. Um, We just wanted to include more CBAs. Only one independent agency cost-benefit analysis monetized both costs and benefits. So our sample includes 30% of all independent agency CBAs conducted during that time period. So to keep the analysis objective, we use a scorecard methodology, which just scores whether a particular CBA met a number of different criteria related to transparency these types of scorecards have been used in the past to get a sense of the underlying quality they're not perfect our goal was to provide something objective um, to keep track of the transparency so overall we find large differences in transparency in cba practice across agencies independent agency cbas in particular perform poorly on almost all of our measures um, for a number of reasons we mentioned some in the paper Uh, we could talk about Executive agencies fared better, and CBAs from the Department of Energy emerged as the most transparent, followed by CBAs from EPA and DOT. Um, In the interest of time, I'll just highlight a few of our proposals, which we feel are low cost but could go a long way to improve the transparency of CBA practice. So the first, on policy transparency. Um, Sorry, on process transparency, uh, for example, we recommend that each CBA explicitly discuss the role of the CBA in the agency's ultimate decision making. This is very important. Interested parties should know how important the consideration of costs and benefits was to the agency's ultimate decision in the first place. Uh, In fact, clear information about the role of CBA is almost a prerequisite to requiring open data. If the CBA played no role in the agency's ultimate decision, or a minor role, or uh, informative, then challenging the CBA's underlying data or choice of model as being poor quality um, might be fruitless. For policy integrity, I'll just mention a few. Um, Clearly identifying components of costs and benefits, especially the non-monetized costs and benefits that were important to an agency's decision, not just simply stating that there are important ones. Um, We also recommend that all agencies make available the models and the data and assumptions um, and then cite to the scientific studies that provide those estimates. So agencies such as the Department of Energy already do this and it provides an easy way to understand the scientific inputs um, and how they're translated into the costs and benefits that support the rule. But importantly, While we would require agencies to clearly identify and cite the relevant studies, we would not require agencies to obtain and post the underlying data from studies themselves. So we think that such a proposal is premature based on our analysis of the current level of transparency. If not carefully crafted, such a requirement might exclude potentially useful information that while, say, relying on confidential data has been replicated, Um, and could give inspiration for further study on these issues. And it's a much costlier requirement in the first place. Um, Our analysis also showed that agencies, I'm out of time, tend to rely on government studies or peer-reviewed studies. Government studies, we already have agency-level programs to post the data underlying those funded studies online, and journals are moving to providing more open access. So having the government duplicate or take over these efforts seems low at this time. And finally, the value of disclosure of the underlying models is tied to the transparency of the role of the studies in the CBA, the policy transparency, and the role of the CBA in the agency's ultimate decision making the process transparency, it seems the first step is to ensure compliance with these basic requirements of transparency that hopefully everyone can get on board on, because ultimately this whole endeavor is tied to the public's trust in the soundness of the analysis, and before my student has to awkwardly shoo me off, I'm going to end.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, our next panelist is Richard Williams. He is a senior-affiliated scholar and former vice president of George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and he's at the Utah State Center for Growth and Opportunity. He served for 27 years at the FDA, where he was chief social scientist at the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. For today's conference, uh, he and Jerry Ellig have co-written a paper. Oh, do you have slides I need to go? I do. Oh, she's, you yeah, open. put Here she goes. I'll introduce you some more then. Um, uh, for this paper, uh, he co-wrote a paper. Uh, for this conference, he co-wrote a paper titled David vs. Godzilla, Bigger Stones. He co-wrote it with Jerry Ellig of George Washington University's Regulatory Studies Center. We're very happy to have Jerry here as well, and he'll join us uh, on stage during the Q&A.
2: Okay. Well, first, thank you for inviting me. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the head, And he fell to the ground. Amen. That was from Hoosiers, 1986. (laughs) Compared to Owyra, we think David probably had it pretty easy. All right, let's, here we go, here it is. Okay. so um, a a number of times people have mentioned the paper by Justice Kagan, who remarked that uh, every president, both uh, Republicans and Democrats, have have uh, complained about how hard it is to control the administrative state. And that really goes back uh, almost to Truman. So our paper is going to suggest some steps that any administration can take on their own to achieve better regulatory outcomes. So let's talk about OIRA. Uh, In 1980, when OIRA was formed, it had 97 people. Uh, Today, that's down to 53. Meanwhile, the agencies in 1980 had 115,000 people cranking out regulations. Today, that's grown by 68%. They're up to 192,000. So, in other words, uh, uh, OIRA is completely outgunned by 3,600 to 1. So, we think that David OIRA needs bigger stones. Okay. So, although, and I know this was mentioned and discussed in the last panel, people look at these annual reviews for the last 21 years summarizing the total benefits and total costs and go, wow, benefits exceeding costs, there can't be any problem. Uh, However, Uh, Work that I've done over the last nearly 40 years and work I've done with Jerry indicates that there are lots of problems. The analyses are poor. In many cases, they're missing. In most cases, they're ignored by decision makers. Han and and Tetlock uh, concluded a number of years ago that the general quality of regulatory analysis is low. Jerry Ellig led a study at Mercatus that looked for a number of years, actually graded regulatory impact analyses. The average grade was F. GAO looked at the missing analysis is, that well, let's see, 19% had no discussion of alternatives, 24% had no monetary estimate of benefits, and 63% failed to calculate net benefits. And in fact, uh, James Brolin and I looked at it over a number of years and found that something like less than 1%, somewhere between 3 and, three and 6 tenths of a percent, had monetized costs and benefits. So how could you make the conclusion that there's no problem from that kind of information? So we think there's a number of things that... A, uh, that a president can do. And the first thing is, have the agency write down, write down in the regulation what is the problem that you're trying to solve. It's amazing. Forty-eight uh, in, percent in the uh, regulatory report card that Jerry uh, supervised had provided no evidence that there was a problem or that there was uh, what the size of the problem was or what the cause of the problem was. So we think that for a start, president should say, define what you're trying to do. And what's more, this is already required in the Government Performance and Results Act. Gipper suggests that you must have strategic goals. You have to have measures of progress toward those goals. You have to set the targets for when you're going to measure them and provide uh, quarterly reports on that. In addition, the current executive order 13771 also requires performance goals and monitoring. So define the success at the outset. That's really important. Next. When you do a regulatory impact, for most of them, they ought to be using GIPRA goals. The benefits ought to be trying to achieve these GIPRA goals. So these things need to be tied together. We also think that, that just like uh, Mercatus did um, with regulatory impact analysis, a WIRA needs to start grading these things. And they actually have a scorecard that they created themselves where they could grade them. I'm sure Mercatus would be happy to provide them with their scorecard, but I think it's important that they're graded for the quality of the regulatory impact analysis, but also how much do they tie in with these GIPR goals, which agencies have to do. Once you grade those things, then AWIRA could take those grades and look at them for each agency and said, how well are you doing? So they take those grades and then turn them over to the budget side of OMB, and the budget side is responsible for proposing budgets to the Congress for each agency. That's important, because uh, agencies care about budgets. Uh, Like the 1979 song from the Flying Lizard said, money don't buy things it's true, but what it don't buy I can't use. Give me money. That's agencies. If (laughs) If you tell them you're going to impact their budget with how well they're doing analyses, guess what? You're going to get a lot better analyses. So rate the agencies. But not just that. If we are going to have uh, regu- regulatory budgets, and I-, I personally think that they're a good idea, why shouldn't they be tied together with agency budgets? So for example, suppose your regulatory budget comes in and it's, it looks like, um, for whatever reason, the political powers that be have decided that you need to have a smaller regulatory budget. Remember, thank you, these are, these are the costs that agencies impose on society. Why do you need the same, uh, the same agency budget? So if your regulatory budget goes down, your agency budget goes down, and vice versa. And it, it should go up. Again, we think these things should be tied together. Again, this is important because this is what affects agencies. It, it's why they do a better job if it affects their budget. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was at the Food and Drug Administration, under the Performance Assessment Rating Tool, I don't know if you recall that, President uh, George H.W. Bush, basically said, we want you to come up with performance objectives. Nobody paid any attention to it. Oh, let's just wait Bush out. He'll be gone, and we don't have to do that. Well, all of a sudden, EPA found out that the Bush administration was going to cut their budget because they had terrible performance objectives. Everything changed. EPA started doing them. My agency, FDA, I was pretty much in charge of my center doing it. When they found that out, they said, oh, no, no, this has got to be elevated way up. Uh, and they wanted, to have, they wanted to have really good performance objectives. So another example, uh, the one I proposed is we were trying to deal with trans fatty acids back then. By now, you've all heard of trans fatty acids. Back then, we did a survey, and 13% of the population knew what they were. 7% of the population thought they were good for you. 6% thought they were bad for you. So I said, okay, why not for a performance goal? Let's lower the intake of trans fatty acids, which would help with heart disease, by 10%. Oh, no, 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 they don't want to be held to that. So instead, our performance objective was make 10% more people just aware of the the existence of trans fatty acids. So that's the kind of gamesmanship uh, that you play. So one of the things that that we believe is about, uh, again, uh, trying to affect the incentive for agencies is that we reward results. So we're not rewarding people for pounding sand. And... Let me give you an example of where that's true. Also, when I was uh, in the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, one of my uh, uh, directors, right outside of his office, had a huge chart. It said, here are the number of regulations we're doing, here are the number of really big regulations we're doing, and here are the ones we're doing on time. Those charts determined all of the bonuses for senior managers and for staff, for everybody, and it occurred to me wait a minute, we're getting rewarded just for cranking out more regulations? Shouldn't we be getting rewarded for results, for results that people care about, for actually making food safer, safer or improving the nutritional content of American diets? But no, we were just getting rewarded for numbers of regulations. So one of the things that uh, Jerry and I also believe is let's start trying to find uh, ways, and particularly these could be found, again, in GIPP less' let's reward managers and let's reward staff for when they actually do make a difference in people's lives when they achieve the goals that they've set out to achieve, not did you pass a regulation. So that uh, that would be one thing. The other thing is agencies get petitioned to do most, thank you, get petitioned to do most of the regulations that they do. And a lot of these petitions will come with a lot of, uh, let's say, political interest. And I think agencies, if they look at these things and they do the science and they, and they do the economics, and they go, you know what? This doesn't make sense to propose a regulation. Honestly, for not doing a regulation, particularly one that gets proposed from the outside or you get pressured to do, if it's not a good idea, I think they should be rewarded for that as well. Again, that goes to budgets and bonuses. So just like George Washington was, I think somebody mentioned this earlier, we think agents uh, OIRA is outgunned, outnumbered, and outplanned often. And uh, George Washington had help from the French, and we think we can give some help to OIRA. So number one, write down what you're trying to achieve, what your goal is, uh, and use, use the goals, most of the goals that are in uh, Government Performance and Results Act. OIRA should then take your, your regulatory impact analysis, judge the quality of them. And as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a great idea. They should also, the first thing that they should do when they walk into OIRA is say, how did you use the regulatory impact analysis to make your decision? WIRA, at, at a minimum, ought to know that, if not the public as well. Uh, agency budgets uh, should be tied to their regulatory impact analysis and to their regulatory budgets, and uh, agencies and the people within them should be rewarded or penalized for whether or not they've achieved the goals that they set out to achieve. So I think i am actually made it under time, so that's good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. Uh,
0: next, we have William Yatman. Uh, will is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, where he researches and writes on administrative law, constitutional structure, and regulatory reform. For today's conference, he has written a paper titled, Why Two Congressional OIRAs Are Better Than One. I will say Will uh, has a bit of a, a, a scheduled crunch, and he's going to have to leave before the panel ends to uh, catch a flight for the Cato Institute. So no, he hasn't been offended by something somebody said. Uh, He just uh, needed to go.
3: Will? I'll I'll try to get out of here right before Connor responds. (laughs) (laughs) All of the excellent papers uh, you've heard about so far today, they all pertain to various aspects of White House regulatory review. The purpose of my paper is to propose the importation, to import this process. To Congress. Um, so why do we need legislative regulatory review? There are three reasons. So the first is keeping up with the Joneses. The political branches of government are supposed to compete with one another. Ambition, counteracting ambition, and all that. Um, the president, unilaterally, presidents have, you know, since the 70s, with Nixon Quality of Life Review, but then um, sort of the establishment of, of OIRA's functions as they exist today in 1981 by Ronald Reagan. They unilaterally established White House regulatory review, and thus they've created this this wonderful mechanism, this important mechanism with which to control these regulatory agencies that are created and funded by Congress. So for the same reasons... um, Would you mind just stepping forward a little bit? um, Mike wasn't picking you up quite. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll lean over a bit. You can slide that in. I thought that was leaning back. Okay, so for the same reasons um, that this is a great tool for the president, Congress should want one. Um, here, the, the the historical example, the obvious one, is the creation of the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. In the 60s, Congress got tired of an informational asymmetry with the president when it came to macroeconomic data of the sort that goes into the, the formulation of the budget. Um, the the president had at his, had at his disposal an army of accountants and economists uh, with which, and this was a big advantage, you know, when it came to um, to establishing an annual budget. So what does Congress do? In 74, 1974, it levels the playing field. It creates its own independent source of macroeconomic data, the CBO. So just as the Congress leveled the playing field with CBO, so should it create uh, some sort of uh, analog to White House regulatory review. So that's the first reason um, this is a good idea, I believe. Second reason um, is to fix the Congressional Review Act. So we, we all know what the CRA does. It gives Congress 60 days to to pass a legislative veto of major rules promulgated by agencies. But it's got a big problem. Congress votes in a state of ignorance. Um, In the run-up to these votes, these veto votes, there's no independent fact-finding or investigation performed anywhere in Congress. Instead, they're wholly reliant on information from either the agency that promulgated the rule, so of course that's a vested interest, or other special interests. So that's not good enough. Congress can do better. Um, And a congressional version of OIRA would mitigate this analytical gap between the branches of government. The third one is historical. Uh, So as the administrative state evolved, Congress designed itself to oversee the administrative state. So by statute, or uh, I guess one could think of it, uh, the the mechanism of oversight were congressional committees. Um, In essence, Congress created a bunch of mini OIRAs Um, to oversee these agencies. And this is for much of the 20th century. By statute, congressional committees have to exercise continuous watchfulness over these agencies. Congress staffed these or uh, invested in in professional staffs with issue area expertise on these committees or for the agencies within their jurisdiction. Congress evolved norms that were meant to complement this oversight system. So there was a norm called apprenticeship where where, uh, new members of Congress were supposed to come in, join a committee, and then master a narrow issue area with respect to the agency within their jurisdiction. I mean, they keep their head down, work hard, learn about the agency. Well, none of this exists anymore. I mean, Congress is very much different um, today and and, uh, much for the worse when it comes to oversight. For reasons I won't go into here, over the last 40 years, power has centralized in Congress such that party leaders now call the shots. As a result, these committees, which, again, were formerly the the primary agent of congressional oversight of these regulatory agencies, they're a shell of their former selves. Um, They've got diminished power. Their committee staffs have been slashed. I mean, they're they're presently at levels that that, that, um, existed in the mid-70s, I mean, that's 50-odd years ago. Norms have, of course, gone by the wayside. So the, the fall of these committees, the fall of this committee-centric Congress, um, has, has been a huge blow to the body's analytical capacity, um, their ability to oversee these agencies. So an Article I OIRA would mitigate this loss. Okay, so those are the reasons why we need a legislative regulatory review. We've got keeping up with the Joneses, fixing the CRA, and this historical reason, kind of making up for the loss of committee's power. Um, How do we get there? So as Stuart said earlier, I'm Stuart Shapiro, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea. Um, Philip Wallach over at the R Street Institute, he pitched it in 2011. It's bandied about in Congress before, uh, for a number of years. However, all these prior proposals share a big problem, a fatal problem. Um, And it's this, they all rely upon the traditional agency model for legislative support. Um, by that, I mean a model that the GAO or the CBO model. So a single agency headed by a nonpartisan director. That simply will not work for regulatory review. Um, and here's why. As Chris said earlier, the raison d'etre of regulatory review are these cost-benefit analyses. In turn, the raison d'etre of cost-benefit analyses are uh, values-driven assumptions. Well, values are the essence of politics. Uh, That is to say that regulatory review is wholly a function of politics. If you ask a Democrat and a Republican what the cost and benefits of any given administrative action are, they're going to come up with wildly different results. Um, The inherent political divisiveness of the problem makes the traditional model impossible. You can't have one agency with one non-partisan head pumping out these numbers, because it, 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 it's just a powder keg of disagreement waiting to go off. Um, the only way to do it is to give each side their own capacity. Um, so here I'm thinking about sort of the, the design, I, I, I imagine the paper, is uh, the political leadership of, of committee staff, so minority, majority, they're each beholden to their own political goals, with the uh, a political professional staff that you'd find either at OIRA or, for example, the Joint Committee on Taxation. Um, so uh, there was more detail to the proposal. I do recommend you read it in the paper. But uh, long story short, in my opinion, that's the only way forward. I mean, we've got a need for um, this function, and due to its inherently political nature, the only way to proceed. Um, is to give each side their own version. And that's why the title of the paper is Why Two Congressional OIRAs Are Better Than One. So that's my paper. Thank you very much. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Will. And finally, today we have Conor Rasso. He is Senior Counsel at the Securities and Exchange Commission, working on rulemaking, enforcement, statutory interpretation, and administrative law. Before joining the SEC, he served in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown's Law School. And he's a contributor to the Brookings Institutions Series on Regulatory Process. He previously served on the ABA's uh, Leadership Council for uh, Administrative Law.
4: Well, thank you, Adam, very much. Uh, And uh, I promise to try to be brief as I think I'm the last speaker of the day and the person standing between you and and the weekend. I want to say I enjoyed the papers. I think there's some interesting and uh, some new suggestions for uh, improving cost-benefit analysis. Uh, my job, I think, in part is to identify some some challenges and some objections to some of the proposals, uh, and uh, and I, I will do that. Um, in the remarks, I'll try to focus on some unique issues to these papers and not some of the issues we've talked about earlier in the day, like OIRA staffing or you know, the way that the Trump executive orders treat benefits relative to costs. Um, so I'll focus on these papers and some of the unique issues. Uh, and at the end, I'll try and suggest a few routes forward. Uh, so briefly, I should also say I work for the SEC, but I'm uh, not uh, here as part of my job and and and, uh, and not doing anything on behalf of the SEC. These are just my views. Uh, so because Mr. Gateman is to run, I'll start with him, change the plan up a little bit. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of good ideas. Uh, I, I do wonder... If uh, Will overstates the transparency problem for Congress in overseeing the uh, uh, CBAs and evaluating the CBAs, uh, Congress has vast powers to request information from agencies uh, through its committees, um, and agencies have relatively little attitude to, to withhold information from Congress without a fight. Um, in addition, um, you know, when you think about the rulemaking record, say that a court would look at, so in a, in an agency whose CBA subject to judicial review, uh, most of that record is is public and is available uh, to to anybody who's interested. Most of it, and we don't hear um, complaints. At least I haven't about the record in judicial review of of CBAs as being biased or incomplete. In fact, we think of the record as being know, supplemented by proponents and opponents of a rule, um, we have this, you know, marketplace of ideas, um, and all this would go to Congress, and so I, I'm struggling a little bit with the idea that Congress is at this major dis, informational disadvantage, um, it really benefits from the notice and comment process, and indeed, you know, while special interests are those who are going to Congress, that's part of the, the way of virtue that special interests on all sides can submit additional information, additional studies, so. Um, I'm, I'm not as on board with the idea that Congress is at a major informational disadvantage. Um, I like the idea of, of a balanced um, independent staffs for, for two kind of congressional um, OIRAs, congressional versions of OIRA. I'm a little nervous about analogies to the Congressional Budget Office, and I, I don't think you push it too hard. But from friends who have worked there who work there, you know the, the budget process is anchored on the need to estimate an impact on the budget and there are a lot of rigid rules that give this some objectivity and we're just looking at the federal budget which is a in some ways analytically easier task um, than looking at every cost and benefit distributional impacts and and the broader economic impact on society And while it is true CBO does some dynamic scoring of macro impacts, everything goes back to the budget and to these rules. And so in some sense, I think they have a little bit easier task. Uh, And and so I'm a little cautious about the CBO analogy. Um, But I I think the idea of of two OLYRAS is interesting in having this competition. Uh, So I will switch gears um, uh, to uh, the David versus Goliath paper, uh, the Hoosiers uh, paper. Uh, You know, the goals thing, uh, I I understand the point. Uh, I think we may have even discussed this previously. I think in some cases, agencies don't talk about a market failure because Congress required them to do the rulemaking. Um, And so I did a paper years ago with uh, Professor Bill West, and roughly a third of rulemakings in our sample um, were statutorily required. Uh, And I can tell you there are rules that Congress tells us to do that we don't see a super clear market failure. Um, and so sometimes the reason may be we're doing what, what statutes told us to do, uh, that's democracy, um, but, um, you know, we don't want to highlight that we think there's not a market failure because we're doing, uh, what, what our statutes told us to do. Um, so, GIPRA, I, I do have, and, and, part scores, I, I have to confess I have, I like the idea in the abstract, I, I do worry about the implementation, uh, so, it's very difficult in many cases to define a metric that we can actually um, measure objectively. And that's that's just step one. Step two, then, so Richard gave some nice examples, you know, increase awareness of trans fats, these sorts of things. But in many cases, exactly what our metric is is hard to measure. So in the case of the SEC, we are trying to increase market liquidity market information hard to measure that actually um, but then the second part step two is to try to in any way isolate the causal impact of our rule on that very difficult very difficult to do um, and we we encounter this when we do retrospective review you know we talk a lot about retrospective review but this problem about metrics and this problem about about measuring them and then this problem about causal identification are real problems. And I think that is one reason why we're always a little bit frustrated with retrospective review. And I think the idea of um, giving OIRA another stone with these tools will run into some of the same uh, measurement problems and causal identification problems. Um, I think I'm not an expert on the PART experience under the George uh, Bush 43 administration, but I think that was part of these uh, reluctance about PART. Um, in a sense that it got politicized, um, was that the goals were often quite vague and measurement about how well they were achieved was challenging. And so that was a, a source of tension with part. Um, so that's one source of reluctance. Uh, my reluctance is greater when we talk about individual employees. Um, and so, you know, as you both have worked in agencies, just trying to think about one in, Individual employees' impact on policy in an agency is extremely difficult, given all the vetoes and all those who are weigh in and all the decision makers um, but trying to then think about um, adding that on top of all the other challenges that I just talked about is even even more difficult, and so um i I do worry about trying to you know think about tying individual agency incentives to policy outcomes in the real world given all the challenges in identifying um, the impact of the employee on, on the real world um, I agree that um, sometimes what gets counted is what gets measured and rewarded I do think though Richard that um, you know deregulation is you know Adam mentioned this famous Article by Justice Scalia, 1980 or 81, in regulation magazine, deregulation requires rulemaking too. Um, and I can tell you that, uh, you know, when we look at the regulatory budget that we heard about, when we're thinking about counting deregulatory rules. We just heard from uh, um, you know, one of our uh, colleagues who was just doing this at OIRA. We can count deregulatory rules too. And so I do think that the counting problem is real, but I don't think it's quite as biased in favor of adding regulation um, as... It might seem at first blush, if you have people at the top who want to deregulate, then you can count deregulatory rules, too. Um, So I guess what I'm trying to say is let's bracket the preferences of those at the top and think about the counting problem on its own, and I I think it cuts more both ways. Um, So where do I come out on this? You know, One thing that I've heard come up a lot at this conference, so OIRA's outgunned, I, I grant you that, you know, Congress has its own challenges, the large um, institutional decay of Congress that will walk us through. Congress has gridlock. Is, are, the courts the, are the courts the solution? Uh, and my answer is a little bit pessimistic there. Uh, and I'll, I'll just briefly say why. I think um, judicial review is inherently tied into, of CBA, of CBA is inherently tied into very political and policy issues. CBA, as Will nicely said, is itself a very value-laden process. And I think courts um, get dragged into politics more than they would uh, reviewing procedural issues, Um, like did the agency properly invoke an exemption notice to comment. Even did the agency read the statute properly? There's this big judicial methodology there. I think it's inevitable that courts are influenced by hindsight bias, so courts get to look at this at the very end, and when everybody presents their arguments, and sometimes we can even see what happened in the real world. judge may try to avoid hindsight bias. I think it creeps in. And then lastly, uh, I do think that judicial review can, I want to emphasize, can deter agencies from presenting a fully honest economic analysis. You do see economic analyses that are written more like a legal brief. Um, and I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it is the threat of judicial review can deter acknowledgement of costs, it can ignore, deter acknowledgement of trade-offs, um, and, uh, I, there was a study, I think Professor Hal Jackson had mentioned this, that you see cases where you can see the lawyers kind of buffing up the benefits, um, and so I do worry about judicial review. Um, so what are the answers? I really like, uh some of Caroline and Bob's transparency ideas. I think courts are better equipped um, to police some of these policy transparency ideas and perhaps some of the, the process ones, too. I haven't worked through all of them, but I think there are some really helpful suggestions. I was saying to Caroline, I, I think there'd be a great ACIS report. Um, I hope these ideas get advanced. Um, and our own Jerry Ellick, I think, has a nice study, actually for ACUS about placing economists in agencies and thinking about how to optimally locate your... Economists in the organization and make better use of them. And I think that, just from my own experience, actually matters a lot getting economists involved in the policy making process earlier, et cetera. So, those are a few um, ways I think we can move the ball. Uh, and I look forward to your comments and questions. And thank you again, Adam. Great, thank you. Connor. So, um, Will, before
0: you have to go, do you have any, uh, any thoughts in response to, to Connor? Oh, indeed. Uh, quick
3: comment. <laughs> I'll just note very briefly, he was my professor in law school. I mean, it's pretty darn <laughs> neat that, um, we're in the same panel, um, and it was a great class. Um, quick point. I 100% agree that uh, the way it should be is that if Congress says we want information from any agency, the agency ought to sprint with a folder um, with, with the request, and that is the way it used to be. In um, those halcyon days of old when committee, uh, committee-centric com- Congress Um, actively manage these agencies, competing with the president to do so. But uh, these days, that's just, or is my understanding, Um, that's not the way it is anymore. And I'll give you one example, um, just one, Um, because I think it it establishes the point pretty clearly. uh, A rule that has been discussed a number of times in prior panels today, the big clean power plan, this is the Obama-era climate regulation, climate change mitigation regulation, Um, three times, uh, in the Obama's second term. EPA political officials, political appointees, went before congressional committees of jurisdiction for, t- for hearings, oversight hearings, on the rule. Um, in each of these hearings, they were asked publicly, aloud, are you working on a cap and trade? Each time they were told, no, not at all. The furthest thing from what we're working on, that is not what we're doing. Congress already deliberated on a cap and trade in, in the uh, 111th Congress, and they rejected it. Okay, well, um, ultimately, you know, it's moot because President Obama lost, but um, in November of 2016, um, what does the EPA do? I mean, the, they issued the rule, you know, again, it, it had all been mooted, thanks to Supreme Court actions and, again, elections, um, but they pitched everything they'd been working on for the previous, you know, since 2013. It was a cap-and-trade. They called it an emissions trading scheme. Um, you know, that's sort of ridiculous that you can come before... The body that funds you and created you, they ask you a point blank question about your biggest rule, the one you 're working on right now, and you get lied to three times um, and I, I think that 's uh, characteristic of of, of of what I think is this informational asymmetry between um, Congress and these agencies or the executive branch agencies. so I, I do think it 's an issue. I will note this one, uh, one other point just because it, it dovetails with one of the propos- or with my proposal legislative, um, what are they called? Uh, uh, legislative affairs offices, LAOs within these regulatory agencies. So Congress established these whenever in the enabling acts, whenever they created the agencies, they're supposed to be these offices that inform Congress. They're Congress's liaison at the agencies for a long time. That's how they worked these days. And again, they're within the executive branch. They're, they're article two employees. Um, these days, instead of informing Congress, they act to, uh, it's all foot dragging and it's all obfuscation. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what these offices were intended to do. They're all within these agencies. So a part of my proposal um, in order to facilitate the flow of information between Congress and these agencies is to overhaul these uh, liaison offices, to take them out of Article 2, make them Article 1 little mini-agencies within these regulatory agencies and invest in them, Um, you know, create these sort of beachheads within the agencies that would afford Congress sort of a, the grease the wheels of information, if you will. Um, so, that's my two cents on that. Great. Well, thank you, Will. And, uh, and happy trails. Uh,
0: <laughs> thank you very much. Jerry, would you like to join us uh, now for the, the Q&A session? Thank you very much, Will. <laughs> thank you. So. All right. Well, um, Will's had a chance to uh, respond, but Caroline, uh, Richard, Jerry, do you have any thoughts on Connor's, uh
2: reactions? Well, um, yeah, I'll start. Um, yeah, first of all, I, I totally agree. These things are hard, but that is absolutely no reason why uh, agencies should not identify what it is they're trying to do and track whether they've had success. Um, Jerry and I uh, used to work with a, a guy here in the other building who was in the Australian uh, um, Department of Labor, and when people would come to him with a, a project, he, one of the questions he would ask him is, when will you be done? When will you have solved this problem or quit if you can 't solve it uh, and Unfortunately, what we see with agencies go for budget requests and because Congress has no long term memory they, ask, they they ask for money more money every year to usually to solve the same problems at some point in a regulation we want to know what problem are you trying to solve when how much is this problem how much of it do you think you 're going to solve, and when is, when are you going to be done I mean these things just go on forever and ever. So I absolutely agree. Some of them are hard, uh, and I think SEC is a good example, although SEC is also a good example of where oftentimes um, I've seen SEC regulations that just say, well, we're doing this because uh, we don't have a regulation, which is not a reason to regulate. Um, But they don't actually say, here's a specific problem that we're trying to solve, so that you can make some judgment sometime in the future about whether or not uh, you're trying to solve it. So Jerry, do you have any?
5: you know I just <clears throat> excuse me, address the point about individual incentives that uh, yeah what what we laid out in the paper was kind of ideally you would want to to the extent that there is discretionary money or whatever you'd want to reward people based on the results they've actually created i mean we we realize in practice that's that's going to be extremely difficult to do, and I think at least I'd be happy if we succeed in moving the needle toward things that are more correlated with producing benefits for the public than did you get the regulations out and did you do it on time. Uh, for example, in, I think this is where it is, in the um, the working group at the Federal Communications Commission that put together the plan for the Office of Economics and Analytics that they stood up last December, one of the recommendations of the working group was that um, in the in the non-economist bureaus that um, SES evaluations should include um, essentially how well do the SES folks understand economics and get it incorporated into the orders the commission writes now that 's clearly not uh, how much you know, how much money did you save consumers today, which would be a, you know, more direct uh, a more direct measure of results, but I think that 's probably a better kind of thing to look at than you know, how many regulations did you put out or did you get the stuff out on time, it's at least somewhat arguably correlated with producing results for the public. So if we can get, if we can get stuff that gets us part of the way there, uh, we'll have an improvement. Thanks. Caroline, did you want
1: to You know, I'm, I'm sad that William had to go because uh, some of my thoughts sort of relate also um, to his proposal. It'll be something that Bob and I have been thinking about when we're thinking about transparency and and uh, why it might be at risk, because um, some of the current level of transparency is sort of through judicial review under the APA, and it's unclear, um, you know, if there's a lot of uh, authority or language for the courts to hang their hat on to continue forcing that kind of disclosure when it's relevant. So, you know, it'd be great if Congress could act on some of these transparency issues that even I'm talking about. So, um, our feeling is that. The problem is is Congress doesn't want to know Congress doesn't want to know the costs and benefits of this stuff they don't want to know this they're they're passing statutes with discretion that sound nice like they don't actually want to get into this so that that's my concern with this um c r a that's not because they didn't have access to these cost benefit analyses no, they just they voted on it without talking about this i mean that's that's a separate thing. No one went on record and said we just don't believe that the value is this or that. I mean, there was nothing on the record. Uh, no one wanted to do that. So, um, yeah, Congress needs more info, and it should want more info, um, but it doesn't. And, uh, and and William's story about the Clean Power Plan, I mean, that is an info asymmetry about what kind of rule the agency was thinking of. But that's not a cost benefit analysis issue. And I think a lot of folks would be on board of having more advanced notice of proposed rulemaking when it's a highly uh, economically significant rulemaking. And uh, I think that's very valuable, but it's a different issue. Um, if Congress were told it was going to be a cap and trade, it's not that they'd have a cost benefit analysis that said there's actually a lower cost way of achieving uh, greenhouse gas reductions. If that's what the statute does, I mean, you know, ultimately this administration turned into a different interpretation of the statute. I mean, but that's a different sort of fight than the cost benefit fight. Um, so my, I mean, I think there needs to be more transparency. Um, congressional CBA, you, you know. Maybe I'd like it if they were interested in doing that. My concern is with this competing political parties, it gives me pause because it almost turns it into a political spectacle of some sort. So yes, there are value judgments in CBA for sure. And those value judgments should be transparent. So if it's the president that has the authority because of an election to make when there's a value judgment to make up that difference and express it to the public, um, that's great. just having people fight it out in majority-minority parties in both houses of Congress, I worry that that erodes legitimacy and trust, and that would ultimately uh, erode support for cost-benefit analysis. Um, if, it's, if there's a credible threat of new re- legislation, so there's a majority in Congress, um, then that would be great if they would want more information on costs and benefits and then they let out some report. And this is our view on this. An agency, can you respond to this and why are your value judgments different and maybe we should use the power of Congress to go a different route? I think that's different and um, I'd be more likely to support something like that.
0: Sometimes... I suppose it's worth asking, what are the costs and benefits of cost-benefit analysis, right? Um, everything that we've talked about, all the, the proposals for reform and refinement and enhancement of cost-benefit analysis, I'm just curious, do you see uh, these proposals as actually affecting regulatory outcomes? Um, and if not, um, what's, the, what's sort of the core benefit of the added work that it would take and the resources within the executive branch?
2: Well, I, I can start. I mean, there there are literally two places where cost-benefit analysis can make a difference. And the first well, neither one you'll actually ever hear about. The first is inside the agency. If the economists get involved early enough, and if they have sufficient amount of independence and they can do a good analysis, and they can be convincing, and that's not easy, and they are listened to, you can make adjustments at the margin before anybody ever sees a proposal. That will never be made public. There's no amount of transparency. And you don't actually probably want that because that's a very much an internal um, thing. The next time is OIRA. And believe me, economists in the agencies use OIRA. They tell people, if you don't do this, I'm telling you you're going to get reversed at OIRA and it's going to be terrible. But OIRA doesn't also. If you notice, nobody from OIRA ever comes out and says, hey, guess what? Last year we saved the economy $16 billion because we made... Uh, Agencies change their analysis, so that's the unfortunate thing. I think there are a lot, nowhere near enough in my personal view, being an economist, but I I don't think there's a way to actually find out how much difference economists make.
0: You know, I remember, oh, it's almost 10 years ago now, um, the inspector general for the CFTC issued a report really blasting the CFTC for its cost-benefit analysis, for the lawyers really driving the train, and the economists were sort of the caboose. but I also, and this was around the time of the, no offense, Connor, the SEC uh, business roundtable case. Oh, um, we
4: had a similar IG report.
0: Right, right. And But I also remember a couple of years after that, maybe it was Bloomberg Businessweek or somebody reporting, that actually the cost-benefit analysis, they they thought were were improving in the agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe it is possible for these, these reforms to really take root.
4: Well, Jerry has a study to that effect about the SEC. Okay.
5: Yeah, yeah act oh okay i thought you were going i thought you were going to plug the ACIS study again but yeah i looked looked at uh a number of uh, s e c releases before and after the business roundtable uh decision and it's yeah it's pretty darn clear that after the s e c issued new guidance for economic analysis, the economic analysis and the s e c orders improved uh, another friend of mine who who is at the s e c you know has even said publicly that that uh Back in the day, uh, there was a time at the SEC where the economic analysis was referred to as the back end. Not not as cute as caboose, but uh, <laughs> same kind of thing. Now, uh, but another, th- another thing in, in the uh, the study for uh, for ACUS that I'm working on, I inter- interviewed economists and, and non-economists at a number of regulatory agencies. And, you know, I can't put a number on it, but I did hear from a number of people that, oh, yeah, there have been changes made in regulations while they were being developed because of something the economists discovered when they did the analysis. Um, and, you know, then everybody said, oh, whoa, wait, okay, let's not do that because it's costs too much, or, oh, whoa, the benefits are really big, let's look at this further. So, yeah, the kind of, the kind of informal, undocumented stuff um, a number of people in a number of agencies uh, say, say it happens.
4: I would just qu- quickly add... Um, I think an underappreciated challenge in all this is actually the incentives exist within economics, and so I do think there is a desire among economists to publish research that's respected within the profession, and working on rules, uh, working on you know enforcement actions is not always their first choice. Um, and there can an equilibrium can emerge in an agency where the economists stay away from the policy and focus on their research. And everybody's happy, um, except those who care about having the economic uh, input. And so um, it takes process documents. It takes commitment of high-level leadership, et cetera, to kind of shift that equilibrium, I think, at some agencies. And so um, that's just another challenge I think we don't often talk about. Uh, Adam, I I think you asked a question that's been
2: asked sort of periodically throughout the day. So is is cost-benefit analysis worth it? And I think the answer is, and I'll give you an economic answer, as compared to what? If you didn't have regulatory impact analysis, how are you going to make some of these decisions? What what exactly are you going to do? I recall uh, an uh, an analyst from the um, Small Business Administration was criticizing uh, a a USDA report. And this this reminded me of it. And she told USDA, you must have gotten your data from the Psychic Friends hotline. I'm afraid it'd be that kind of decision making, but I don't know
0: <laughs> you know what my last question um, and Connor raised a similar a similar point you know looking at the these tools for for improving cost benefit analysis these standards well I'm just curious will these make judicial review of agency action you know easier or harder will it make judicial review better or worse or or not or will it just not really have an effect um, because uh, it's it's, it's you know, As we, somebody said earlier, these judges aren't economists. They don't have, other than Doug Ginsburg, I guess, and Steve Williams. They don't have economists in their chambers. Um, the more complicated this becomes, uh, could it undermine judicial review or, if nothing else, make judges more deferential uh, because they see complexity and don't want to engage in it?
1: Let me start with this one, because as a respect, with respect to my paper, it's it's just pretty simple. I mean, I think increasing transparency of cost benefit analysis could only improve anything, because if anything, it improves the record before uh, the courts for judicial review. So ensuring that the cost benefit analysis is actually posted online in an easily uh, discoverable way, when the notice of proposed rulemaking comes out, uh, which, which most agencies do, but surprisingly some don't. I mean, to give uh, comment interested parties the full 60 days to comment on that cost-benefit analysis and raise issues that are then raised in judicial review, I think that's uh, certainly valuable. Knowing courts to know what role the cost-benefit analysis played in the decision-making also valuable. I mean, it, it came up a little bit in the Michigan case that's been brought up um, because one of the parallel arguments in that case was, well, okay, but so say the EPA does have to consider costs. Well, they do have a cost-benefit analysis. And the final paragraph in that decision, uh, the majority by Justice Scalia just says maybe, but the EPA said it didn't rely on it, and I'm not going to go and rely on it if the EPA didn't rely on it. So.
0: Anybody else?
5: Well, Adam, you, you gave me a perfect opportunity to plug a paper that I presented at, at one of your conferences last year right. that, that Reeve Bull and I did looking at uh, judicial review and regulatory impact analysis. And basically the things we found are that, first off, at least if you look at the appeals court level, um, you can find plenty of examples of courts looking at regulatory impact analysis carefully and you know doing a reasonably good job of figuring out whether there were problems or not. Um, and you know, th- a lot of this is not rocket science. It's you know, did they look at alternatives or not? You know, did they discount both? So, somebody listed this morning in one of the panels listed some of these things that were not. Connor, was it you talking about that?
4: Okay.
5: Yeah, I mean, the, a, a lot of the a lot of the kinds of things that judges look at are not uh, you know, don't involve judgments about whether um, you know you use the r- the right elasticity estimate. It's much more kind of high level and simpler than that. Uh, so, you can find those examples. There is variation, and it seems like a lot of a lot of the variation in how courts treat this depends on what the statute says and When the statute is more specific about factors the agency is supposed to consider or uh, how it 's supposed to make its choice among different alternatives, uh, then uh, a court will look at the economic analysis pretty thoroughly um, if the Statute is more vague and just says consider benefits and costs somehow. Then sometimes the court will look carefully and sometimes it won't. And then finally, if there's no direction in the statute, most of the time the courts are very deferential to agencies. So, and that, that's why I think uh, for effective judicial review, we probably need something other than just let's let the, let's let judges evolve on their own in terms of what they do. Uh, and, and, I, and I was really intrigued. I'm really intrigued by the uh, the paper that uh, that my colleagues did this morning, um, talking about. And Bridget's sitting right there. Bridget and Bri- is Brian still here now? Okay, Bridget and Brian's paper talking about some kind of a rule that might give guidance to judges as far as what kind of things to look at. Uh, you know, the idea never occurred to me. We were, Reeve and I were mostly talking about, you know, how would you write legislation if you're trying to deal with this, but. The, the, the rule is an intriguing option.
0: Well, are there any questions in the audience? We'll start right here. There's a microphone coming up.
6: Good afternoon. My question would would really be for the panelists who left, and uh, uh, it's unfortunate he's not going to be able to respond. My <laughs> we'll try to okay. channel Will as best we can. Okay, uh, he uh, he suggested that we it would be better if. The legislative affairs offices and government agencies were actually uh, loyal to Congress and not to their uh, uh, to the agencies that they're part of, so that the, so that they could uh, dig up the information and make sure Congress is informed instead of presenting it in, in a in a way that uh, the way that, that they do now, which doesn't always give the Congress the answer they're looking for. And what I was thinking is. Uh, a, as it is now, in, uh, every government agency has an inspector general, and if a, and if a member of Congress wants uh, wants a thoroughly uh, investigated a, an answer that's not influenced by the agency leadership, they send the question to the inspector general. But uh, and, the, and then the agency a leadership has their staff of people to advise them on how to present it to the inspector general so if uh, so if if the um, uh if the legislative affairs offices became like that then the agencies would hire another level of people to uh to filter what or what what information reaches the legislative affairs office and so uh, so i um, and and uh, and i suppose the panelist who uh, who left would be the best person to respond to this because he's he's probably already thought of these issues but I, uh but I suppose that's all I could say about it for the moment. Well, let me,
0: let me ask a sort of a related question about Congress um, and, and, and cost-benefit analysis. It's always good when somebody is, and my kids just went back to school, and I'm glad the teachers grade their homework, and they don't grade their own homework because they do a better job. I mean, the sorts of, the sorts of approaches you've sketched out, and, and all of you, you know, focus so much in your work on cost-benefit analysis, which, is the, which branch is better suited to grade the homework here? I mean, not just sort of check the boxes of did you jump through the, the right hoops, right, or, but, but actually thinking hard about the substance of cost-benefit analysis in the agencies. Would it be the courts or would it be Congress?
2: I'll just start because I think it's, it's, it's really hard. So first of all, a lot of the complaints about cost-benefit analysis isn't about economics. It's about the underlying science. And that is extremely difficult, and I, you know, it's not clear to me. I think it's really the public. You need to get the public more involved. When you think about it, every year the Federal Register has 70 to 80 thousand pages, most of which are regulations, but other things. But then behind that, there may be millions of pages of comments, and so there, there's so much information out there. And I, I but again, I, I think. Certainly there are problems with economics, but there are also gigantic problems with the underlying science, which we just touched on earlier, but we didn't touch on like the linear no threshold dose response curves, which are inappropriate in in many instances. We didn't touch on the fact that right now, as of now, most journals won't publish negative studies. So you got a positive study, but there might be 20 negative findings that completely offset it. But who knows these things? It's not even published. So we have a long ways to go, that's all. I have no answers. (laughs) Do we
0: have any other audience questions? Well, I have to say a, a, a full-day conference on cost-benefit analysis on a Friday takes uh, some real endurance. Can I recommend uh, we applaud for everybody? Yeah, to stay everybody
2: <laughs> I do
0: want to say we are so grateful for all of you for joining us today and thankful also to our authors, including those who weren't able to make it. I realized um, when I ran through at lunch the lineup of conferences for the fall, I forgot to mention the next conference we're going to have here on campus, actually. It's October 25th. It's on the administration of immigration, uh, looking at different um, challenges um, in and paths for reform in the administration of our immigration laws. So I hope you'll join us for that. But the next conference, uh, and it'll be in Washington, DC, is the uh, the conference on the administration of democracy, featuring former White House counsels Bob Bauer and Don McGann. I hope you'll join us. Thank you very much. Thank mm-hmm. you.